Welcome to another edition of the Baseball America podcast. I'm J.J. Cooper, joined by John Manuel, and, and we're doing this. Normally, we sit side by side when we do this. Today, we are uh, separated by many hundreds of miles, because I'm here at the Baseball America World Headquarters in Durham, North Carolina, and John is currently on his balcony in his hotel room at the uh, at the Opryland Hotel, the Biosphere, that... Uh, that basically uh, encompasses all the winter meetings, and it seems like almost all of Nashville. Is that a fair way to put it, John? It seems like it's all of Nashville, but I, I know it's not. I know there's a cooler part of Nashville that's out there somewhere, So, but it's outside the biodome. I did uh, take the opportunity yesterday to walk outside across the street. At the, I was invited to speak at the... Uh, Sports Management Worldwide uh, little symposium that they do across the street here at the uh, the Inn at Opryland. I was on a panel with Josh Rawich of the Diamondbacks and Rob Nyer of SB Nation, so that was neat. It's actually my first time to see uh, to meet Rob in person, so that was a pleasure. And uh, but uh, the bigger pleasure was getting out of the biodome and actually walking across the street. Um, Jim Callis actually took the occasion today to go visit Vanderbilt's campus. Yeah, he's scouting. But apparently it was raining, so bad day for Jim to take his campus visit. So, uh, so but I've been in the biodome, and I think JJ, as a result of being locked in the biodome and breathing the same stale air, I, I think I, I I caught another case of Rule Five fever. Oh well, it's good to know, you know, because I've had a low grade Rule Five fever now for you know really ever since the forty man rosters were set. So. Uh... But that's it. Uh, I think that's you have a higher case. You're 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 running a little. Uh, your fever's running a little hotter than mine right now, probably because I'm. Mine had abated, and mine had abated, and uh, I was starting to worry about whether we were even going to do this podcast. But in the run up to the podcast and writing up some more guys, texting and emailing with scouts, I got the fever. <laughs> so I'm pretty excited. So well, since you're there, we'll start with that. So what is? <laughs> What are the what's the Rule Five buzz? And I know that the reality is is you know, having been to winter meetings, the Rule Five buzz actually doesn't start till about oh ten thirty eleven o'clock at night on the night before the Rule Five draft. That's the rule of of Rule Five buzz. But the little bit of Rule Five buzz that is out there in the uh, lobby, what's what's the Rule Five buzz? Well, it is interesting because the media, um, you know, you ask them about the Rule Five, and you know, basically, I think the mood the the rule. Media is trying to just figure out if their clubs are going to do anything or not. I think the expectation is that it's going to be a fairly active Rule 5. I mean, the, the last couple of years, it feels like you know, 10 to 15 guys who get picked. I have a feeling this might be more like, I think there was one three or four years ago where there were 19 players drafted. I don't know that it's necessarily a good Rule 5 class or a deep Rule 5 class, but I do feel that teams are going to be active on Thursday morning. And we're going to see 15 to 20 players selected in the major league phase. That, so that there, th- there's been a little bit of buzz on players. I think the buzz on players actually gets generated more by us and by Jonathan Mayo at MLB.com and national media like uh, the two of us to um, cover the Rule Five and throw out some names. That that really is my feel is that that's where the buzz kind of starts. There are a few older scouts who you do, I think we all try to talk to, who've been around these winter meetings. Those are the guys where you end up picking up some of the Rule 5 buzz from. But uh, to my knowledge, the, 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 the buzz that I've picked up is that there is a sense that it's going to be active, J.J. And I think we all have our personal cheese ball players. And then you know, we're getting ready to publish uh, 
you know, number two, version 2.0, um, hopefully more successful than Spinal Tap's uh, version 2.0 of our Rule 5 draft preview. But uh, we can just dive right into some of the – I'll throw out a name. Uh, the, my, the most intriguing name so far to me is a name that Ben Battler has picked up on. So naturally he's a Latin American player. Um, but let's, let's start off there with Jose Dominguez of the Dodgers organization. Um, 22 years old. Uh, we've got scouting reports of Jose Dominguez sitting 96 to 98. Uh, you know, touching a lot of 100s during the year. He finished the year very strong. Uh, he was, he got promoted to double A after being in the Midwest League for most of the season. And in double A, uh, especially his last two outings of the year, he faced Birmingham, the White Sox uh, affiliate, and he struck out nine guys in three and two-thirds innings. So 11 batters, 11 outs, nine of them by strikeouts, didn't allow any runs. So that's really, you know, a, a strong finish of the year. To my knowledge, he's not pitching winter ball. But then there's this further complicating factor with Dominguez. Uh, so, he, so right off the bat, J.J., he fits the profile of the Reiner Cruises of the world or the, you know, longer ago uh so uh, who was the pitcher who had the big year for the Braves? Who was an ex Rule Five pick? I'm blanking on his name. He had one good year as a starter. Jorge Sosa, is that it? Yeah, yeah, the converted the converted uh, outfielder. That's him. So Jorge Sosa was a Rule Five pick. So the, the, the Latin American pitchers, and the reason that I specify Latin American is guys who they sign at a young age and they take a while to develop, and they're usually not protected because they're in short season ball or low A, and they have have big time arms, but most of the times their teams don't protect them and think that they won't get, they won't be able to stick right. in the big leagues, but they make kind of adjustment in big league camp or the pitching coach and they throw enough strikes to stick. So he fits that uh, category. Then there's the complicating factor with Dominguez that he was suspended in November, right about a month ago, um, November 5th, I believe, is the day the press release was issued, that he was suspended for 25 games for a violation of the drug treatment program. Now, he did not get, there's, there's no specification in that press release by MLB of what drug he took. And the speculation is, we haven't had this confirmed, but since we're on a podcast, I'm going to say speculation. The speculation is that he didn't take the test or his, you know, there's some complication with his test. So he suspended for 25 games, not the regular 50-game suspension, and the wording of the suspension is a little bit different. So here's a guy with a drug suspension. He's Barely pitched above Class A. He's not pitched a winter ball. He's 22. He did have a 5-plus ERA in uh, low Class A. Nearly walked six guys per nine innings. So is he Archimedes Carmonero, the guy with the live arm a couple years ago, who the Marlins didn't protect and we were all hot and bothered about at Rule 5 time? Or is he Jorge Sosa or is he Reiner Cruz last year's pick by the Astros who did stick in Houston on a 107-loss team and, and spent the whole year in the big leagues? <laughs> The, the the likelihood is he's probably A, he's more of a Camonero, but that's, we talk about these because there's always the chance he can be a Jorge Sosa. And, and that's, that's why it makes this interesting. I, I got another guy, we're gonna, you know, he's gonna be in the write-ups also that kind of fits along those same slides, uh, Yonata Ortega with the uh, Rangers. Pretty similar MO, although his fastball had kind of dropped off some in, in 2012. Not as, as firm a stuff, but you're still talking when it's you know he's shown 94 97 before he's got a good splitter he's also a guy who's got control problems he did he did make it to he's already pitched in double a so that's one thing kind of working for him you know he's not my my pick to click but but if, when you were mentioning 
kind of the the mo there that that's another guy who kind of fits that um kind of to me yeah he's he's an intriguing arm because he's 26 um you know he's older and he um, and he just signed with the yeah, rangers as a minor league free agent so the the argument also against him is if you really like this guy you could go out and get him as a minor league free agent and not worry about the whole roster thing so Right, that is that does argue against him, but he he's an intriguing name. Uh, he he was definitely one that that, that I you know where my ears were pricked up on. Just uh, he he's a guy that I'm going to ask about, but like you said, I mean, I, he's kind of similar. He's an older version of Jose Dominguez, and that he's a guy who has not thrown a lot of strikes in his minor league career outside of a ball. Um, but there's no denying the live arm, and uh, was in the handbook in the 2011 handbook in the Diamondbacks uh, top 20. So, uh, that, you know. There's two kind of two parts I think to any Rule Five preview, JJ. At least in the Baseball America version of it, there's the guys who are intriguing who you think might get picked, or the names that you hear uh, scouts talk about. They usually don't talk about too many of them. Then there's the fun guys who you'd like to see picked. I wanted to ask you who are some of the guys that you'd like to see picked? Because I know the one name. I wish he were healthy. If he were 100% healthy, I would really love to see this guy picked. But Pat Vendit oh, yeah. or Vend. I never know how you pronounce his name. I think it's Vendit. Right, right. Because I remember, however we pronounced it, we were told wrong, it was wrong when we talked to his dad, or something like. That. Yeah, I I think it's Vendit, but I mean, people. I think most people remember him as the. Uh, you might remember Pat from such roles as switch pitching and the 2008 All America team. He was, uh, you know, uh, All American at Creighton. Pitches with both arms. Had a torn labrum in his right shoulder this year. And Pat has pitched a lot of winter ball in the past, and he's not pitching winter ball this year, which leads me to believe he's still not healthy from his uh, labrum tear. I haven't talked to anyone about him, uh, but that's a guy that I would love to see picked one year when he was healthy. See him in Major League camp and see what he could do, because uh, as Matt Eddy has taught us, a platoon advantage is a very, very important advantage. And it would be a nice thing to have a lefty specialist who you could trust if you had a left, right, left, where you could bring in your left guy and get a, get an inning out of him because he has the, the platoon advantage against both sides. Of course, you have to throw quality pitches from both sides, and the issue with him has always been that he's had below average stuff. Um, but the platoon advantage kind of makes up for that a little bit. So he, he to me, is one of the most, the most intriguing players available. Um, the health problem is obviously a problem, but um, this might not be his year to get picked. But I'm, I'm always... Uh, he, until his career is over, I will look for Pat Vendit in the Rule 5 draft. <laughs> um, by, by the way, I will edit this part out, but uh, move your mic slightly away from your mouth. Uh, you're getting some pops okay. on it. Okay. Um, All right. But, no, I, I think, you know, I don't think he's going to get picked, but, yeah, I agree that he, he is definitely one of the most fascinating names who is out there for this. The, a guy who I do think, I think we've talked about that, to, you know, that we do think will get picked, I understand in some ways the Red Sox basically at the you know at the end had to decide okay do you protect this guy or not they didn't protect Josh Fields former first round pick of the Mariners I I, I would be I guess a little bit surprised if that guy's not picked because I yeah, completely agree with you because he has stuff and he it's not impractical to say could that guy actually help you in a big league bullpen next year I mean not you could carry him, and then two, three years down the road, hopefully he could help you. He's a guy who you say, I mean, he pitched in AAA and had some success last year. You could say, okay, if he has a good spring, that he could he could be the rare Rule 5 guy who's actually kind of treated like a normal guy with the only downside of 
a lot of times you want a little bit more flexibility with your relievers to be able to come bring them up and down. You wouldn't have that flexibility with Fields. But besides that, he could be a you know a useful sixth, seventh inning guy who could do that. And it's not like you're having to stretch to project him to do that. Yeah, I think he's a great name to bring up because he has track record, he has pedigree, AAA experience, and he finally had some success and really made some progress. Uh, I think the, one of the things that the reasons maybe he, I don't know if he's under the radar or not, but why we don't talk about him as much as maybe we used to. Um, and w- when he was at Georgia, we talked about this guy a lot. I mean, he was a second-round pick as an eligible sophomore in 2007, didn't sign with the Braves, uh, came back the next year, helped your alma mater and Jim's alma mater get to the College World Series uh, finals where they lost to Fresno State, but he was outstanding for Georgia. Uh, First-round pick of the Mariners. And then, you know, he was that tail end like we've written about of like that little period, a glorious period for college relief pitchers <laughs> where they were first-round picks from and, about 2003 to 2008. And, and, and I've, I've got to be honest with you. He was yeah. one who, watching him in the College World Series that year, again, hashtag not a scout, I watched him and was like, I, I don't think this guy has a chance. And the reason I said that was is that he was a guy who was extremely effective in college, but was had no command at all. I felt like uh, I don't know what you thought, but I, to me, no command at all, and and control was kind of a question. But his stuff was good enough that he could get guys to chase out of the zone in college, and I was like, you know, that's probably not going to work. He's gotten. I mean, he he has toned some of those issues down because if he didn't, I, I still wouldn't think he'd have a chance. But. But that was always – I was never a, a Josh Fields guy, and now I'm saying, hey, this guy should be taking the rule five, but, which is funny how there's things – There's always been a lot of – yeah, no, I think, I think that's fair. I mean, uh, I liked him a little better than you did, but there's always been effort in his delivery. There's always been a lot of moving parts. He's not a big guy. So he – it's not a J.J. Cooper delivery. Mm. So if you're, on fa- if you're on Facebook – That's an effortful we had delivery. A, we had a good laugh about this it last night, J.J., because – Jim is not on Facebook, Jim Callis. So because Jim's not on Facebook, he'd never seen the video. So if you're on if you're if you're on Facebook, first of all, go like Baseball America on Facebook. We got about twelve thousand likes on Facebook, maybe more than that. Second of all, once you like us on Facebook, go back to our December go back on our timeline to December two thousand eleven and that's what pops up is the video that I shot of you with my iPhone uh pitching last year in the I, I quote unquote pitching. <laughs> Uh, at the, uh, you, you get to see my stabbing arm action that Marty Wolliver panned and said he would never sign me. And uh, then you get to see your Lu- inadvertent Luis Tiant slash Gene Garber impersonation. No, 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 so, no, 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 no. Give me a little credit. There's some advert. It was somewhat advert. Okay. There was some intent there. Um, but it's good. So there wasn't a J.J. Cooper effort level delivery from Josh Fields. But there was a lot of effort and all those moving parts. And, you know, he was a little guy generating all that energy. But I did talk to, actually to Arnie Baylor, the Pawtucket manager, late in the year. Um, you know, I was talking International League uh, top prospects, and they were in Durham for the AAA championship game. And he cited Josh Fields and the improvement that he'd made. Uh, the direction of the plate was better. So all that energy is now going in one direction instead of multiple directions. So, But the other issue, the one that I think you hit on – as an amateur, and, we, and you and I have talked about this a lot in recent podcasts, as an amateur, he did not have to throw his breaking ball for strikes. His calling card was his breaking ball. I mean, he had velocity, but a lot of guys have velocity. So the calling card for him was that at that level, as an amateur, it was a plus fastball and a plus power breaking ball. But in pro ball, nobody chased, and he didn't make the adjustment 
basically until age 27. So here in his fifth professional season, he's made the adjustment uh, better. He's still not a strike thrower, but he has shown an increased ability to throw his breaking ball for strikes or at least something approximating the strike zone as opposed to a pitch that right out of his hand hitters don't respect its it's ability to find the strike zone. So to me, that's a big difference for Josh Fields. And I do think he's he's one of the more likely players to to get popped. So, uh, well, let me know, ask you that. That that leads to an interesting question because we talk about this a lot, but it is it is one of the differences. If you say what's the difference between the majors and and a guy who's having success, especially in A ball, but even Double A AA and Triple A, it's it's that can you generate swings and misses in the zone? Kind of with that, I'm trying to think of. Can you think of a guy, a pitcher who has? A swing and miss pitch that goes that's an out of the zone swing and miss pitch that has effect that is effective at the big league level because really the only thing I can come up with is is that if you have a really good split I'll give you that because you can throw it in a way that is that looks like a fastball so like Nomo at Hideo going way back but Hideo Nomo at his best had a swing you know it was a swing and miss pitch that was an, a ball pretty much every time, but you still had to swing at it because you thought it was a fastball. Yeah, I think Hiroki Kuroda, actually, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, um, that had the similarities between Hiroki Kuroda and Hideo Nomo in that way, in that, like Nomo, he gets hitters to chase. He, and I think that's the key there is, and this is what Daisuke Matsuzaka did not do, they commanded the fastball. So when you have, and, and this is, again, something that Josh Fields does not do, if you command a fastball and hitters have to respect your fastball command and then you fill up the strike zone with your fastball, and then there's a pitch that's coming out of your hand that looks like a fastball coming out, they have to make that split-second decision. And if they read fastball and they get split, they're going to chase. And that's the difference. You have to have a pitch. That, so, so there's so much that kind of goes into that. You know, is your, are you throwing all your pitches out of the same release point in the same, same slot? You know, are you you repeating that release point? That is, I guess, honestly, that's that's really deception Mm -hmm. because hitters can't tell by your release point what pitch is coming out. And, uh, you know, like what they talk about with Barry Zito, where his curveball, where at a point where his curveball was coming out, where the first thing it did was go up. (laughs) So that was a a tell for hitters that they they knew the curveball was coming. And at that point in his career, the first adjustment he made was he relied more on the changeup but then when you lose fastball velocity, everything kind of cascaded for him. But, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of – to me, that's a tell. And I think fastball command is one thing that would make your make hitters chase your other secondary pitches more often. But that would be a great project uh, for any of our listeners who, uh, who like to play with the cloud and like to play with pitch effects to find a pitcher who gets hitters to chase out of the strike zone. I would love to see that research. Um, who's getting hitters to chase the most? Uh, that would be something I, I would be interested in finding. I have a feeling that it's not going to be a former Rule 5 draft pick. No, I, I'm still <laughs> safe with that. That that was clearly a diversion. But yeah, back- I really do think that's. I, I think that's a big. I think that's a big part of, um, of the, the the tale the tale for Josh Fields. Uh, one other, uh, you, you, we also mentioned earlier, JJ. Uh, you mentioned Ortega. You, uh, yeah. The, the good farm systems are often the ones that we. Get rated in uh, the Rule Five. One thing that Matt Eddie and I noticed a lot was 
Yankees players who've been uh, rate the, the Yankees get rated in the Rule Five pretty frequently. Um, but you know, just just looking at the Rangers and their eligibles list, you mentioned Ortega. Do you feel like the Rangers? Is there an organization that you feel is going to get rated more often than uh, than another one in, in this Rule Five? Was there one when you were looking through the eligibles list? Was there a team that you said, man, they've got a lot of guys who could get popped? I can't say anyone that jumped out is like, man, there's like four or five. There's like because. Taking it from a BA window, first, the first thing we were looking at was, okay, so here's who are some guys, who are some guys we want to write up? And there were organizations where I could find two, three, four guys who I might want to write up, but then when I'd start kind of working on it, it'd be like, you know what, that guy's not going to get taken. Um, like, I mean, I, you know, like I do the Royals list, and there are a number of Royals guys who I could see one or two of them getting taken. Um, John Keck, who we wrote about, left-hander who, you know, can run it up 94-95. It was, everyone saw him in the fall league. Patrick Keating, a reliever who's, you know, made it to, to double A and has been a guy. I mean, a, a fringy guy, but a guy. You know, he's made a couple of uh, top 30s. Uh, Angel Baez, who's really interesting on there, he, he kind of fits the profile of the the Latin American player who takes a while to develop. And so because of that, you roll the dice and, and put him – you know, he's available, but with great stuff. I mean, Baez will run it up 96, 97, 98. But the thing about it is is that he just pitched in low A this year. So, And he really probably profiles as a reliever. Are you uh, – that, that's where really a lot of this, like, because the guy who jumps out to me more than anyone for being available is Jesus Aguiar, who is a top 10 prospect in the Indians organization. That's not a good top 10, but he's still – I mean, this is a guy who's a top 10 prospect – but then you start looking at it, and it actually makes some sense because what team, you know, what team's going to take uh, not ready first baseman? Yeah, and that's it's actually intriguing because I thought that three of the better names out there, um, as far as guys who are the most big league ready and would be easier to protect, are first baseman. Uh, we wrote about Aguiar. We wrote about uh, Mark Krause. We wrote about Chris McGinnis, the Arizona Fall League MVP. I'm glad that you brought up Aguiar, JJ, because that kind of reminds me, the Indians, like we just said, this is not, in our minds, a fertile farm system, not a system that has a ton of depth, um, but it is a farm system that left some players unprotected. Um, Aguiar was number nine on their list, uh, Giovanni Ursula and Elvis Arahuo, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Arahuo, I believe is his last name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I butchered that pronunciation, and I, prob- I apologize to Elvis's family for that. But both those guys are in their top 30. Alex Monsalve, I think, was in their top 30. TJ McFarlane, I think, was in their top 30. All these guys are unprotected. Um, McFarlane's had some upper levels success. He, he's, he's one left. of the <laughs> – let me uh, – yeah. if I can make another digression, but this is a Rule 5 digression. We, you can almost – we've talked about this. Matt Eddy's big into this. You can break the categories of guys who normally get taken into a couple of different categories. There's the control pitcher, who that's why he's available. T.J. McFarlane, who could, you know, a lot of cases, especially if you're lefty, T.J. McFarlane fits that very well, and that he's a lefty who, you know, who could work as a lefty reliever. So you've got the control pitcher, you've got the power pitcher who just isn't ready, which we've already talked about a couple of the guys like that. Then there's the... Middle infielder who, yeah, we could carry him as a utility infielder because he plays defense well. Um, 
the Mike Martinez uh, right correlate here. <laughs> right. You know, but so that's you know, there's a a, a variety. But sorry, I, as a digression, but T.J. McFarland very much fits the the lefty without great stuff, but who you know who throws enough strikes and has enough pitches to maybe get picked. AJ, I think we we kind of think that those guys don't get picked, but then you look at there they do. Look at last year, Terry Doyle gets goes second overall to the Twins, and uh, you know I do our Twins top thirty, and I just saw the Twins contingent walk by here uh, on their way out of Delta Island, which is I just love all the names of the places here at the Opryland. But you look at the Minnesota Twins, and they just traded Denard Spann for Alex Meyer. Which I think is a pretty intriguing trade. We could talk about that later if you if you'd yeah. like. Um, I think it's a pretty intriguing trade. But obviously the Twins need pitching. They know they need pitching, and that trade was a good, I think, a good gamble for the Twins. And they, but, but they didn't get a close to the majors pitcher. They got a pitcher who's never pitched out of a ball, but in terms of upside, has more upside probably than any pitcher in their organization. So I think it was a worthwhile risk for them to take. But you're still looking at the at the Twins. If you go to their MLB.com depth chart, you're still looking at a team that basically has three starters under contract on its 40-man roster for 2012 who have That's major league experience. That's not good. And they're, and they're Liam Hendricks, Cole DeVries, and Scott Diamond. I mean, Liam Hendricks is a guy they like. He's been a top-10 prospect. He's also like 1-12 in 12 in the major leagues with an ERA near 6 in his career. Might be over 6. Cole DeVries is a guy who never made a top 30, a guy who, honestly, I think no one with the Twins would tell you they ever expected to be a guy who pitched as many innings in the big leagues as he did last year. And the last thing they, they would think to do is to make uh, is to make plans to have a team where Cole DeVries throws 180 innings in the major leagues. That is not the way they expect to win a championship. It's not even the way that they expect to, like, hold a place. You know, um, so this, this is an organization that I think, no matter what they do on the free agent market here, I think they're going to take a back-end starter. I think they're going to take somebody in the Rule 5 draft, and it's going to be one of these Rule 5, or it's going to be one of these back-end starters you're talking about. It's going to be a T.J. McFarland type, and I'll throw out a couple other names to you. I think it could be a guy like a Vidal Nuno, left-hander, thick-bodied left-hander who had a great year in the Yankees organization. He was at Trenton for the last 20 starts of the year. Um, honestly, uh, uh, talking with Yankees personnel, I probably should have made him best control in the handbook. I think I put Caleb Cotham, who was also draft eligible, uh, Rule 5 draft eligible. Cotham I consider a little bit better prospect, but he's injury prone. Nuno is not injury prone. He's having a big winter ball with Zulia. He's got 19 strikeouts and 21 innings there. He's left-handed, but he was more effective, more effective against right-handed hitters than he was against left-handed hitters in the Eastern League, but he held both of them to a sub-700 OPS. He's got about a 3-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. A lot of these things add up, and you throw in the fact that he threw like 140 innings in the regular season. Now he's thrown 20 more in winter ball. You're talking about a guy who's thrown 160 innings. It wouldn't be a crazy leap to think that he could throw 150 innings for you in the big leagues if he's having some success. Uh, you threw out McFarland. I'll throw out another durable body uh, starting pitching back-end guy. That's Nick Struck of the Cubs organization. He was their minor league pitcher of the year. Uh, had 14 and 10 and like 150, 155 innings at AA Tennessee. And then threw, you know, 11, 12 more innings 
uh, in the fall league. Didn't put up great numbers in the fall league, but what do I understand? You saw him throw the same three pitch mix that you saw him throw in Double A. Uh, again, he's from the Terry Doyle playbook. Um, and then uh, uh, I believe, in the words of Peter Gammons, who would use the word "old friend" here, but an old friend of uh, of mine and a longtime personal cheat ball, Justin Fitzgerald, yet another back end starter type. But if you're talking about, I'm not saying these guys to Joe Blanton because Joe Blanton has done it. But I've seen the tw- the Twins tied to Joe Blanton, and Jim Bl- Joe Blanton's done it in the big leagues. But it's possible that one of these guys could, if you, especially if you're rebuilding, could be a, 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 a close equivalency of a Joe Blanton. And I'm looking at Justin Fitzgerald as a guy who pitched 165 innings this year in Double A, then went and made five more starts in winter ball, so he's over 180, 100, close to 190 innings for the year. A guy in 165 Double A innings gave up eight home runs. Last year, in 140-some innings in AA, he gave up seven home runs. He was Rule 5 eligible last year. He's Rule 5 eligible this year. The Giants do not value him as a prospect. Some scouts, again, it's a back-end profile, but I've always liked Justin. He was a closer at UC Davis on a team I liked. And to me, this is a guy who's shown that he can fill up the strike zone, keep the ball in the ballpark, and keep his team in a game. I think there's value to that. And to me, Justin Fitzgerald is greater than Cole DeVries. So to me, he's a guy that a team like the Twins that has some real questions about their 2013 major league rotation should take a long hard look at. I'll throw two other guys out like that that could that, that there's a and let's just say there's a lot of guys that we could throw into this category of the the guy who's had some success who knows how to pitch who doesn't have great stuff category. But two Phillies guys, Austin Hyatt and Julio Rodriguez. Julio Rodriguez didn't have a great year last year. Had a was really the uh, the most effective pitcher on a, a very talented staff in, in Clearwater two years ago. Um, but he's one of those guys has has a variety of pitches, generally knows how to pitch. Austin Hyatt, I, I would say maybe, you know, if, if you were grading out the stuff, might be a little bit better than Rodriguez. Um, he's another guy who's who's very intriguing for those you know reasons. Has had has has some some upper level minor league experience. He, he could be a guy who you know you see fitting with a team like the Twins if they're trying to find a guy to come to camp and have an outside shot of being that fifth starter. And you know, JJ, both those guys, even though Hyatt's strikeout rate backed up this year as he got his first AAA time and he kind of got hammered in the International League, but both Rodriguez and Hyatt, what stands out to me is they both have career strikeouts per nine of above nine strikeouts per nine innings. They both average more than a strikeout an inning, and it's both. Uh, you know, for Rodriguez, I believe it's 400 career innings, and for Hyatt, it's 501 career innings. That's a long track record of missing some bats in professional baseball. And and they're both pretty durable too. Correct. So I would find, I, and the, the one qu- complicating factor is if you draft Julio Rodriguez, I can almost guarantee you, as we as worlds collide here, I can almost guarantee you he will be on Puerto Rico's World Baseball Classic <laughs> roster. And he will be look to as a significant starter for Puerto Rico. He was their number one starter during the 2011 World Cup. He was also a significant starter for them in the 2010 World Cup qualifier, which was played in Puerto Rico. So uh, Javier Vasquez, whom we discussed last week before I came here, is going to pitch winter ball for in Puerto Rico, tuning up for the World Baseball Classic. But Puerto Rico does not have a deep roster of pitchers and Julio Rodriguez is going to be part of that. So if you rule five Julio Rodriguez, you have to know that he's 
going to start getting hot early because of the World Baseball Classic. That's true. That's true. World Baseball Classic affects the Rule 5 draft, potentially. Um, but no, I, I do think, though, that there's... Again, that fits that, that, that category there. The, the, the category, you know, which what that happens is, is that, so we see first baseman. I do think some of the best guys in this Rule 5 draft, some of the best available players are first baseman. The real question comes down to, will any of them get picked? Because to me, you only pick a, a you like it a little better if it's a first baseman outfielder. Mark Krause gives you a little bit more flexibility there. But if it's a, a primarily a first baseman, it's really hard to carry those guys as a bench guy. So you only take one of those guys if you think there's a chance that he could even compete for a, uh, you know, to a, for a starting job or, or contribute to DH or something like that. That's why, to me, the guy who's I like the most out of that group is Chris McGinnis because I think he could do he could hold his own in the big leagues and, and be a productive player in 2013. Not a I, I don't think there's a whole lot of Massive upside there, but he'll get on base, have a little bit of power. Uh, is, is any of those guys jump out to you, or you know, of that type? Do you think it's just going to be a lot of guys who don't get picked? I think most of them are not going to get picked, but I do think one of them will be, and I do think McGinnis is the guy because he was so good in the fall league, and he does have track record of drawing consistent walks, and he's starting to tap into some of that power. So, um, you know, Kraus I think is interesting. And the Astros, uh, you know, I, I prefer I prefer McGinnis out of those first base options. Um, it does make me think of the Astros. Kraus makes me think of the Astros because, first of all, this is a team. Well, I do their top thirty, and thank God it's done. <laughs> so there's that. Number two, it's an organization that just carried two guys last year in the Rule Five, and with Reiner Cruz and Marwin Gonzalez. And, and an organization that still in 2013 is not exactly going to be uh, battling for a World Series spot. Correct. There's the, the indications have been that they are going to be active in this Rule Five, and they pick first. Uh, we'll, we need to go ahead and post the Rule Five draft order, but the Astros pick first in the Rule Five. So let's look at the Astros at first. First of all, they need a designated hitter. They don't have a DH. They are in the American league for the first time. That would have made me think they would keep Mark Krause, but maybe they have DH. Uh, well, you know. but also maybe again, the, the, the reality of this is that that's a guy who you might, you might win that risk because Correct. those are the kind of guys who don't get picked as much. Correct. And make him earn that spot. Uh, you know, in big league camp, but there isn't there. There's no obvious first baseman in Houston. Brett Wallace has had his opportunity. Um, if there are any, are, are there any center fielders that you look at here, JJ? Because Brandon Barnes finished the regular season as the Astros center fielder. Uh, the, jo- the guy I can, he's not. I mean, he's more of a fourth outfield type. But but Josh Bellhauer with the uh, Reds. Um, yep. I guess I'll give you two Reds guys. Felix Perez with the Reds, former uh, Cuban. Uh, not former Cuban, a Cuban who came over a couple of years ago, and uh, and Fellhauer, both of them are fourth, fifth outfield types. But the reality is, just that the Astros were fielding at times. They didn't have many fourth, fifth outfield types on the uh, big league roster. They had sixth and seventh outfield types. But uh, Fellhauer can play all three positions, gets on base, um, can hit a little bit. Uh, had a good year at Double A last year. That that's a guy. Again, if we're throwing out names, who there's some there's some some 
that's the guy who jumps out to me because there aren't a whole lot of guys who you say, okay, that guy can play every day center field in the big leagues and hit. If those, if you can, you're not available in the Rule Five very often. Exactly. I mean, that's a that's a to me, it's not a top level premium position, but it is kind of a premium position, and you don't usually see those filled uh, via the Rule Five draft. But yeah, I, I did not see in my perusal of the um, you know, the, the Rule 5 eligibles list, I did not see an obvious center fielder. And I'm almost look, like I'm looking at the Astros 40-man roster. I almost wonder if Chase Juan Lin, even though he's not primarily a center fielder, not always a center fielder, he might be their pick-to-click in center field. He's on their 40-man roster. I think they got him a waiver claim from the Red Sox. I mean, but, but, but the, 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 that's a team that has a lot of needs, J.J., and um, you know, last year they really did have a middle infield need that was a crying need, and that led them to draft Marwin Gonzalez, and he was uh, fungible for them. He played okay, you know, for them at the big league level. They still had to go out and make some moves, um, but but yeah, the, so the teams that are at the top of this, that are picking toward the top of the Rule Five, um, you know, the, the the Astros pick first, the Cubs, the Rockies, the Twins, then Cleveland. I think you're going to see some of those teams, you know, picking guys for some need. And Cleveland, I think it's interesting. Obviously, last year Cleveland thought it was going to contend. They did contend for half the season. It sounds like Cleveland's going to blow things back up again. Um, but most of these teams we're talking about toward the top, Cubs, uh, the, the Cubs are really the only exception. I guess the Twins have a large payroll, but they, they're trying to pare that down. And the first six picks, most of their teams uh, have a lot of needs and also are trying to stretch payroll at the Rockies like the Miami Marlins. Then you have the Red Sox at seven. I mean, the Yankees have been fairly active in the Rule 5. Do you expect a team like the Red Sox that has a lot of money but also lost 93 games and has a lot of need, do you expect them to be active in the Rule 5 draft? I particularly don't myself. I don't, but but here's the the one thing I'll, I'll throw out there, which is the cost of this is so low. The, the reason I think the Red Sox probably won't, for one, is is that their rule that their forty man's pretty tight. That's to me, we've reached the point. The cost of the Rule Five pick is immaterial completely, because you're really talking about twenty five thousand dollars, and that is money lost in the you know the seat cushions for these teams for for every team, Marlins included. But the one thing that is tough is is you are talking about while you, that's a forty man roster spot. And those are valuable, more valuable for some teams than others, depending on what your kind of where your farm system is at that point. But the reason I, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Red Sox not to uh, uh, involved is is that I don't think that they necessarily they're going to have, especially when they get done making the moves that they're going to make. I think they're going to have a very full forty man, and you take a pick. That's like that guy's on your forty man, and at least until mid you know mid March when you decide to send them back. So I think there is right now after signing Mike Napoli. And the thing is, I actually thought that they were going to be active because McGinnis, I should have mentioned this earlier, they originally drafted Chris McGinnis. I think they liked him. Uh, I don't remember how the Rangers got him. must have been some kind of trade. Um, Of course, Baseball America transaction history can tell me that for subscribers. And he was traded uh, in the Jared Saltalamacchia trade uh, with right-hander Roman Mendez. So um, that's how the Rangers got him uh, for Salta Lamakia. Salta Lamakia, obviously, in Boston. I think McGinnis could be a guy that, well, you look at Boston, and they traded Adrian Gonzalez. James Loney's a free agent. 
right now their first baseman looks like it's Mike Napoli, who obviously they didn't – I don't think they paid Mike Napoli $13 million just to play first base, but they already had five catchers on the 40-man roster when they signed Mike Napoli, and they have Big Poppy. So it's not like there's a ton of DH time sitting there for Mike Napoli. So to me, if you're signing Mike Napoli and you're Boston, you're doing that with an eye to him playing a lot of first base. Oh, yeah. Prim- right? Primarily, he's a first baseman. They've, I mean, that, he's going to be a first baseman primarily for them. So I, it does make me wonder if if there's a guy who you draft to be that other first baseman, if it's a Rule 5 guy, who can caddy for him defensively and play first base when Mike Napoli gets some of those catcher bats. Because I just saw, you know, the, the – uh, I say this in an endearing fashion, but the insane Rangers blogger, Jamie Newberg, <laughs> loves Mike Napoli. I sent out an email today about his love for Mike Napoli and how he's sorry to see him, the Rangers lose Mike Napoli. And one of the stats that jumped out in Jamie's ode to Napoli was how much better he hit when he caught than when he didn't catch. I think he hit 186, albeit with a 70 or so OPS, when he played first base or DH. As any, and he hit better when he caught. So, uh, you know, I, I could see the Red Sox at seven being a team that goes out for a first baseman kind of to be a caddy to Napoli. Uh, but but the, the point is, the Rule 5 is interesting and intriguing. It's very unlikely, J.J., that there's another Joachim Soria no, and, or, or Dan Ugla out there in this year's class. No, and, and the reality is, is that, you know, as we've talked about, the Rule 5 has been purposely gutted. Yeah. They added an extra year of protection before you're eligible for the Rule 5. Well, what that's done is, by the time a college player is eligible for the Rule 5, you pretty much know what they are. Fair to say? Yeah, by this time, uh, the Dennis Green rule is in effect. They are who we thought they were it, I mean, the, the only, The only ways I would say that may not be true is for a conversion guy. If, That's a good point. Like, again, I do the Royals. If Brett Eibner falls on his face again in 2013 as a hitter, and they say going into 14, you know what, you're going to pitch. Well, at that point then, you're talking about a guy who's Rule 5 eligible. You have to make a decision on whether he's Rule 5, you know, forward, protect him on the 40-man or whatever, and you don't know what he can do as a pitcher. But when you have four years as a college player under their belts, if they're not, you know, a pitcher is now a hitter or a hitter is now a pitcher, there's not a whole lot that's not known at that point. I think that's a great point, and that's why Josh Fields is a surprising guy to be included because usually jokers like him don't make on these lists. I've exhausted my Rule 5 inventory of things to talk about, J.J. Unless there's something else, Rule 5 uh, eligible, is there anything else you want to talk about uh, winter meetings related in there? But, no, I, there is one other thing I do want to talk about. I, I think if you look at that, that Denard Span, Alex Meyer trade, that, that reaches the level of, of worthy of comment. You're talking about a, a big league regular traded for a premium, a relatively premium prospect. I, I like the trade kind of from both sides. I really like it from the national side because I think what the nationals have done a very good job, and me and you talked about this in the office when the deal went down, it's hard for teams to properly time the transition from being sell, buyers to sellers right. when it comes to prospects. 
And I feel like that the Nationals did that about as well as, as, as anyone has in recent years, in that they made that transition last offseason, and they, they really they paid a price. I mean, they, they sent off a number of good prospects, but they were the best farm system in our mind in baseball before those trades. Um, so you look at that and you say, yeah, that worked out pretty well. They, they, they realized when they were playoff ready at the right time. And now what they're probably going to do for the next couple of years is primarily is going to be using these guys to, to kind of fill the holes like this. And, and I don't think there's a better way to fill a hole than to trade a, a very good pitching prospect, but one that's still got some significant risk to him for a guy who fills a, a very dire need for the, for the Nationals. Yeah, because from the Nationals' standpoint, it's a great deal, I think, because you get a center fielder. Uh, which they wanted. You move Bryce Harper to a corner, which is, I think, better for him in the long run. You have Michael Morse go back to first base, where he hurts you less. I do think they lose Adam LaRoche, which will be a problem for them because he's a power left-handed bat. I think Span gives them a true leadoff guy. Uh, you know, Harper becomes their true power left-handed bat. And, uh, you know, you are, I think this does put a little bit more pressure on Bryce Harper. Because you look around the rest of that lineup, there's not really another big left-handed bat in there. Really, David Espinoza. I mean, Danny Espinoza. I mean, is their other left-handed bat basically a switch hitter who has any power? Because Span is the only other left-handed hitter in their in their everyday lineup. So it does unbalance them a bit. But I think Span was a player they had targeted, and they go get him, and they didn't have to give up a big leaguer to get him. Today, as I'm recording this, they signed Daniel Dan Heron to kind of replace Edwin Jackson. And I would rather have Dan Heron than Edwin Jackson. That's an easy call. Um, and then, uh, so their rotation is fortified. Uh, they're, and to me, J.J., the clock is ticking on the Nationals, and I think they know it. They have to win while Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper before they hit the free agent market because they're Boris clients. And nobody knows better than Mike Rizzo that Boris clients are not going to give you, just because they've given truckloads of money to Scott Boris, does not mean that Scott Boras will reciprocate and that Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper will not test the free agent market when they become free agents. Those are two guys. There's not going to be a press conference four years from now where Bryce Harper says, I want to be a national for life, and he signs an Evan Longoria deal. That ain't happening. Uh, yeah, but one thing I'll say is, is that that, t- that clock is ticking, but that clock is still right now five years away. I agree. I mean, that's, but, a, that's a long clock. They're still in win-now mode. They're in win mode while they have those two guys under controlled contracts so they can spend a lot of money on everybody else. Okay. I, 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 think, I think it's just undeniable. That it's a, they, have a, they do have a window of four to five years where they have Strasburg and Harper both under team control. But, but what, that's it. They're not, those guys are not going to be there for 15 years. They're just not. They're both – Actually, you, no, gonna, hold on. We don't know that they won't be there for 15 years. What we know is, is if they are there for 15 years, it will almost assuredly be because on the free agent market, they re-signed with the Nationals for a massive deal. And that just I, – I just don't see that happening. I, I honestly I don't see don't both see of them. I see they could do one. I don't think you can do two. And, and that's it. The, 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 what makes the Nationals the Nationals is those two guys. I mean, they have great other players. Ryan Zimmerman is a very good player. They have, I mean, obviously, Gio Gonzalez. They have other very good players. But what makes the Nationals dynamic is Strasburg and Harper. And they are 
you know, and they traded a Boris client in Alex Meyer. That's an organization that uh, Mike Rizzo has a long history with Boris clients, and Scott Boris obviously has a pipeline into the owner there in Ted Lerner, and that's how you give seven years, $120 million to Jason Worth. So I'm, I'm on the Boris tangent. I didn't mean to get on that tangent. But let's talk about what it means for the Twins. Uh, I'm still debating this for the issue, I mean, for the prospect handbook. Kyle Gibson was number four on the Twins' top ten. Kyle Gibson will be 26 uh, next year. He's 25. He's not pitching the major leagues. He uh, did pitch well in the Arizona Fall League. That said, he pitched about 60 innings this year. And when you say pitched well, I mean, it's the Arizona Fall League, so everything, but he was above five ERA. Right, but I think he was second in the league or led the league in strikeouts. Right. 28 strikeouts, 20 innings. He probably had a league average ERA. And his first two outings there were outstanding. Subsequently, not as good because he did give up more runs. But 92 to 94 with the fastball. Uh, a couple of pro scouting directors who confirmed those numbers for me with what he pitched as far as his fastball velocity in the fall league. Uh, the the changeup was as plus as it has ever been. Uh, the fastball was plus. The slider has been plus in the past. Some of the action and the shape on the slider were good. His feel for the pitch and command were not as good in the fall league as they had been pre-injury. This is a guy who's always thrown a plus slider. So you hope that maybe the arm action didn't lengthen and maybe he lost that feel for the slider permanently. But, you know, that's something to kind of TBA, uh, you know, well, TBD, to be decided uh, when he has more innings. But that, that's the Twins' best pitching prospect kind of by a mile. Who would you take, Alex Meyer? who really had an explosive season in A-ball, threw more strikes than he has um, when you look at his overall track record going back to his three years at Kentucky. Um, but as a six foot nine pitcher, he's probably never going to have precise command. Probably always going to have below average command, but maybe he has 50, 55, 60 control. Uh, but he has bigger stuff than, than Kyle Gibson. He's younger, and he's never had Tommy John. JJ, I'm putting you on the spot. I can tell you how I rank them. But who would you take, Alex Meyer or Kyle Gibson? Probably Meyer. And the reason I say that is is that Gibson has, at this point, as you pointed out, I mean, he's a little bit of an older prospect and his pitcher, so I'm not as worried about that. But but also the reality is is that he's got a, a significantly worse injury history than Meyer. Yeah, I, I took Meyer. Right. And, and, I, and that, that'll be reflected in the handbook. And, and, and by that I mean go past the Tommy John. There's been a num there's been a number of years where where with him with Gibson it's like okay well he's got this that's bothering him. he's got this that's bothering him. Well, and in, in in fairness to Kyle Gibson, it was a forearm strain that affected him his draft year, and that forearm strain made teams shy away from him because they thought that meant future right. Tommy John surgery, right. and it did. And it did. So I think but they're related. Right. So I, to me, I almost kind of count that as one injury. And if you want to, you can count that as one injury, but. The the reality of that because of that, Meyer's not that far behind him development developmentally, even though he's significantly younger than Gibson with better stuff. Um, I feel like if you know if you're making the argument for Gibson, I mean I could make that argument pretty easily. You probably could too because you could say, hey, here's a guy. We just talked about the Twins rotation. This guy's going to pitch in the big leagues in 2013. If he doesn't, something's wrong because. If he doesn't, it's because the rules. It's because the Twins draft two of these innings eaters that we're talking about in the Rule Five, <laughs> and Kyle Gibson has some kind of physical setback. To me, if Kyle Gibson doesn't exhaust his, he's either going to exhaust his 
rookie eligibility in 2013 and not be in the handbook, or he's going to have a crappy 2013, and if he's back in the handbook, he won't be back in the top 10 because he'll be 26 and still not a big leaguer, and then what is he? I mean, it's really – this is the last year Kyle Gibson is going to be in the top 10, and hopefully for Kyle Gibson, uh, it's the last year for him in the handbook because uh, he needs to get on with his career, you know. Right, and Myers uh, is a higher-risk guy, but I think also it's fair to say Meyer is a guy who, ceiling-wise, is significantly higher than Gibson because if it all comes together, it's, it, it could be a pretty special package. Yeah, so I, I liked the trade for both teams. I think if you're a Twins fan, you would, you, you're taking more risk, but they have to. And this opens up to the – I think maybe we talked about this, J.J., but it just, again, goes back to the Twins' philosophy um, – that Mike Rackliff has talked about, that when push comes to shove at the top of a draft, they lean toward the hitter. And I think that also holds true internationally, that when push comes to shove, they go, go toward the hitter. And I think it's funny. I got some questions in the Twins chat. And I get this on Twitter, too, where Twins fans say, oh, we can't develop hitters. If we don't develop power hitters, look at how they let go of Big Poppy. I just think that's just so silly because the Twins, I mean, even last year, Trevor Plouffe, hit 20-plus home runs for them, and uh, and he's Trevor Plouffe, for crying out loud. <laughs> but they've developed Maurer, they've developed Morneau, they've developed Jason Kubel, uh, Wilson Ramos, uh, Michael Kadire had a nice, long, productive, big league career. Span, Revere, they've developed all kinds of hitters. Hitters ain't the problem for the, for the Twins. It's the pitching that's broken down and the fact that they haven't drafted, signed, developed, a homegrown pitcher since 2006 draft, where Anthony Slama was a 06 draftee and signed as a fifth-year senior draft and follow in 07. That's the that's the problem. So when you have this gap, uh, this developmental hole, you have to make deals to uh, you, know, you have to make trades to fill in. Uh, the Royals are doing the same thing. I mean, when you have a developmental hole, you have to go out and get Irvin Santana and trade for him and assume an eight-figure contract. Well, so. that's the interesting thing to me is that the, the Twins and the Royals are in very came into the offseason in very similar situations here in that both of them had gaping holes in their rotation. Uh, I think that's fair to say on both parts. It's be interesting to see. The Royals' approach is, has been very much to get it all. They want to have that all kind of taken care of. If not by the end of the winter meetings, then, then by mid-December it seems like at the latest. Right, and the twins have been taking the it seems like the opposite approach, which is they're kind of letting the kind of everything settle out, and then they're going to make their moves because really they haven't done much of anything to really upgrade their rotation yet, have they? And I mean, I know that Terry Ryan was quoted that when Scott Baker, former Twins right-hander, um, was signed by the Chicago Cubs, his quote was. Well, that's not because we didn't pursue him. We pursued Scott Baker. We wanted to re-sign him, but he chose to sign with the Cubs. So that was a setback for them. I think most of their targets, their early targets, have just signed elsewhere, and that's why you see them connected to a guy like a Joe Blant in these rumors central. So uh, they know what their problem is. I, I, I think the other issue for the Twins is, uh, even though they've made some changes, I believe that their front office, feels a little less pressure to win now, despite the fact they've had back-to-back 100... Uh, oh, I agree with you there. I think that's the probably the biggest difference. 
think that's the biggest difference. I think the Royals realize that Dayton Moore and company, if they don't show progress this year, as we talked about in the AL Central podcast, if they don't win 80-plus games this year, or in your mind more than that, that they are going to lose their job. And I don't know that the Twins feel quite that same pressure, but honestly I think the Twins – aren't that far away from that same boat because uh, you know, since old man Polad um, passed away, the younger Polads in charge of the team are a lot more aggressive. They've spent a lot more money on the major league roster, and they've had less success, obviously, the last two years. So, uh, but I do think the Twins I – I honestly think the Twins tried to, sh- to get a more major league-ready pitcher for Denard Span and decided that – the upside of Meyer was more attractive to them than uh, the same old Twins pitcher, the back of the rotation guy, uh, they could get. But that's that's their mentality. Their mentality is they can find starting pitchers. uh, They can trade for pitchers. It's hard to find stars in the draft who are position players. So it's basically the anti-Dick Tidrow philosophy, which Dick Tidrow has always said, "Ah, I can always go find a hitter. We've got to go out and find some pitchers. And for most of my time at BA, I thought the Twins' approach was the better approach because they'd been a much more consistent winner at the big league level. But when you throw Buster Posey into the mix, all of a sudden the Giants have two World Series championships in three years when you mix in an impact bat like him and Pablo Sandoval that they developed with all the homegrown pitching that they have you know, accumulated over the last decade. So, so right now that Dick Tidrow approach is looking a lot better. Yeah, and now I'll ask you that you, you kind of touched on this, but I'll put you on the spot. Twins have had two bad years in a row. Do you think they should feel more urgency than they do to to kind of you know, or is that a realistic assessment? Because I think also at the same time, it is a realistic assessment to look at this Twins team and say there's not a move or two that they can make to contend in 2013. Well, I think there are two. I'm of two minds on that. Part of me says. They should still try to contend in 2013 because, A, the, the American League Central is the Ukraine of divisions. It is weak. Uh, 88 wins won it last year. Uh, second of all, I don't know, uh, even with the Tigers, uh, their fearsome middle of their order, how much better is that than the twins of Maurer, Willingham, and Morneau? I mean, even Morneau backed up last year. I wouldn't shock me to put it in J.J. Cooper parlance if Morneau had a dead cat bounce season and one more big, big year. Um, Yeah, they gave up Denard's fan. They have center fielders galore, and I'm not a huge Ben Revere fan, but I also don't think that Aaron Hicks is that far away. Um, I like, in my mind, uh, I think while they have Maurer under contract, they could, they they could still put enough young, homegrown jokers around him uh, to have a, a very good lineup going forward. They're going to be, I think, a team that's going to score some runs. Uh, so that would be the argument. And, and basically, you really need to get that one or two uh, pitchers that are hard to find, obviously. But uh, I, just th- I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility to contend. That said, I lean more toward blow it up. I lean more toward... With all the money coming into the game, Joe Maurer's contract is not as onerous as it maybe looked like last year when he was having a difficult year in 2011 and had the injury issues and hit 280 or whatever he hit and just wasn't Joe Maurer. 
I think now that Joe Maurer has shown that he could be Joe Maurer again, and uh, you look around at teams that are trying to retool, I'm looking right in the American League East at the Yankees, who just lost Russell Martin, the Red Sox, who do have five catchers, <laughs> but have expressed interest in Joe Maurer in the past. But uh, honestly, J.J., I'm looking at teams like that, even though the Yankees say they want to come down. Joe Maurer fits the Yankees like a glove. They don't have a catcher. Uh, that's a park where I think he would throw more power. He's only had the one year where he hit more than uh, double figures at home runs. I think mean, that's, that's a team he could go to and hit more home runs. I've, uh, to me, uh, when you're the Yankees and your goal is to win World Series championships every year, Joe Maurer would help them win a World Series championship in the short term with with a older roster. And it might be the kind of thing where they have to move out a larger contract Curtis Granderson first to make room for Jeff Maurer, but I'm the twenty move Jeff Maurer and that contract and if you can get a large haul in return for Joe Maurer. Um and uh so I, I do I, I could see where they could if they could make smaller moves to get really just fungible former, you know, old style twins pitching, I think their offense could be it has the potential to be dynamic. Um so I could see if they go that route. I think Defensible, I would see what you could get for Joe Maurer and see if you can rebuild. Well, before we wrap up, I do have one other question. Since you are at the uh, winter meetings, try to describe a, l- a little bit kind of the uh, – it's different in every city depending on, on where it is located. But, but you know, kind of to wrap this up, to people who haven't been to the winter meetings, kind of if you would just describe it a little bit to people, kind of what's going on and kind of what – you know it. I think one of the things that, that stands out to me is is that it's as important as it is for baseball. The thing that jumps out is is that most of these teams are actually sequestered in their 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 suites, and it's not something where you're seeing you know okay this GM's huddling with this GM over here in the corner as much as it is you know okay we're going to come over to your suite you'll come over to ours but it's it's kind of done behind closed doors more than actually you know, in in the open, I guess, which the first time I was there, it surprised me how little you saw of the uh, of the front office officials during the day. But but describe to people what the winter meetings is like a little bit, I guess. Well, the romance of the winter meetings, I think, J.J., is the old story about Roland Heeman. I think the winter meetings were in Hawaii that year where he put out a table and had a sign on the table that it said, open for business, you mm-hmm. know. Let's trade. I forget who, who he was the general manager at the time. White Sox, wasn't it? I think it was, and I think that was a very because it was a very very Vecchian thing to do. Exactly, and uh, you know Roland's here, and was at the luncheon yesterday, and it's uh, Scout of the Year uh, banquets coming up tomorrow, and uh, but they give the awards uh, Monday during the minor league banquet where we give our minor league or our organization of the year award. But seeing uh, so to me, this is the, these are the, so so there's the romance of that uh, of. That idea that teams are swashbuckling, making deals, swapping players up and right. And like you said, that really only happens uh, in in their hotel rooms. And, uh, you know, so there's that part of it. You do still see, uh, especially here in the Biodome, here at uh, Opryland, which is basically like four or five little hotels, not little, four or five hotels all interconnected in this internal, like I said, biodome. I mean, there's just a lot of trees in here. There's a skylight so we can see the sun, sort of. 
outside. <laughs> you kind of get a sense of what the weather's like. And there are these, all these walkways, tree-lined walkways when you're inside, so you can't always really see where you're going. You're walking past people, and most people are on their phone or texting as they're walking. There's a whole lot of that going on with the baseball people, especially the, the media. You really see a lot of media walking around. You see a ton of, you know, you see a lot of, uh, I'll make a joke here at their expense, but it's met with respect. You see a lot of very small people walking around looking at their Blackberries and their iPhones. You know, the Tim Kirkjans and the, but especially Buster and uh, Ken Rosenthal, um, guys who work their asses off all week here, JJ. And I, I have so much respect for the national writers here, the John Heyman, the John Palmarosis. I'm not trying to slight any of them, but all those guys, and obviously Peter Gammons, um, the work those guys put in here, uh, texting, constantly emailing, texting, calling, meeting off to the side with front office people. Uh, that's one thing that really stands out to me is how hard those media guys work. But just how you can just spontaneously see a giant – so you'll think there's nothing going on, and all of a sudden, boom, some piece of news will drop, and there's action and a flurry of activity. And if it happens to involve a New York team <laughs> or a Japanese player – the Japanese media is a little bit more swarmy than the North American media. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, it's it's fair. It, it, and the thing that stands out is is also just again, I would I I'm fascinated by the media landscape of Japanese media because the budgets in the U.S. the travel budgets for uh, newspapers have have gone through the you know floor. Right. Does not seem like that's the case in Japan yet. And there was a great article, and I forget where I read this. It might have been Jim Capel on ESPN. I think it was Jim Capel who wrote a really neat article about a friend of his, obviously, in the Japanese media. He's gotten to know um, over the years, as that reporter has been, his, his beat is not to cover the Mariners. His beat is to cover Ichiro. And, of course, he's been in Seattle for a decade, and then Ichiro gets traded to New York, so this guy packs this up. This guy gets New traded York. to New York, essentially. Now this guy... Is his future is tied to Ichiro's future, and wherever Ichiro goes, he will go. So he's probably, you know, he's probably got a horse in this race, but uh, he has no influence on it. Talk about, uh, he, you know, this guy goes needs to go read Augie's book. Yeah, I, I, every time I think about this, I think about Augie Garrido on our old radio show talking about controlling your controllables. And this guy has uh, his controllables. Did not involve some things that are pretty important to him, like where you live. <laughs> you know? um, that's a one very basic controllable that he has absolutely, that's absolutely uncontrollable to him. It's mostly, you know, most people have some say in where they live. He has no say. And uh, media always fascinates me here. But to me, the overriding image and sound of the winter meetings is when it's one o'clock at night, and like it was last night, and I got done with a file for the prospect handbook and i wanted to celebrate with a frosty beverage i texted the scout who i knew was here found out where he was and you go downstairs or whatever hotel you're in wherever the winter meetings are you go out in that lobby where there's usually a bar or several bars set up and like last year you and i would go down there and you got into that lobby and before you see it you hear it and you just hear that buzz of hundreds of people Almost all of the men. It's quite the sausage fest. <laughs> you hear that buzz and you hear that hum 
of a bar with a lot of people talking baseball when everyone should be sleeping. And that writing sound and image of the winter meetings is that hum. It is a hum. It's a buzz. It's, that's a good way to describe it because it is. You hear it before you see it, and you build, and you get into the middle of it, and you're kind of always surprised at how loud it can get. There are a lot of people, a lot of beer, a lot of drinking, and nobody's acting foolish and out of control, at least not where I am. Maybe that happens at 3 or 4 in the morning. But in that giant lobby, that to me is the overriding image, is that sea of big le- of people and, uh, and then that hum. So there goes Josh Boyd and uh, A.J. Preller walking through the Delta Island Convention Center uh, bridge. So I should let those guys go. That's a good sign that it's time to end the podcast, I think. When A.J. and Josh have come out of their uh, hotel rooms to stroll around, I think that means that it's time to go. Well, John, thanks for for joining us on this. Thanks everyone for the download here on the uh, on, on this edition of the Baseball America podcast. If you're enjoying this, also by the time we have this posted up, we uh, plan to have a a Rule Five preview, our second Rule Five preview. Get you ready for the Rule Five, which Thursday morning, 10 a.m. I believe. Uh, I think it's 9 a.m. Eastern time. 9 a.m. Eastern or 9 a.m. Central. Wait a minute. You know, this is this is an important fact. So let me just. I have the PDF in front of me. About the Rule 5, December 6, 2012. Does it have the time? Uh, hold on a minute. This is fascinating this podcasting. It's a tremendous way to end the podcast. Rule 5 draft, 9 a.m. Thursday. So you were right, 10 a.m. Central, 9 a.m. 10 a.m. 10 a.m. East, uh, Eastern, Eastern, 9 a.m. Central. Yep. So we are we are on Central time here in Nashville. Um, but yes, the Rule Five Draft will happen at uh, 10 o'clock. So we'll, I'm sure we'll tweet the heck out of it. But uh, we will have a post uh, Rule Five podcast as well. We'll probably just keep that one pretty tight because it's uh, me and Ben Badler, and Ben is a man of fewer words than you or I. So we will have a a, a quick podcast, and we'll see if we can even rope Jim Callis into the mix uh, with some uh, Rule Five musings uh, with that podcast here from Nashville. And then uh, Thursday night, I'm also, J.J., going to try to rope uh, Will Myers into a little podcast. Will Myers, our minor league player of the year, flying in here Thursday to accept uh, his Baseball America Minor League Player of the Year award. So I'm excited to have Will here. Uh, We haven't had a minor league player of the year winner come on in to the winter meeting since Jay Bruce. So very excited for Will to be here. So we'll try to interview him and have that podcast as well. That should be up on Friday. Great. But again, thanks for the download, everyone. Thanks for uh, sticking with us on a, a relatively long Rule 5 podcast. We definitely have the Rule 5 fever. So uh, uh, thanks again, and we will be back again, as you heard, later this week. So long, everybody.